then I would say to my progressive, you know, friends, let's have this debate. We're having a primary. That's good. Let's let's get all of our ideas. You want to support a candidate that wants to get there by 2030 and is really ambitious? Go for it. Fight hard for it. But here's the thing. Trump is the end game. And when our debate is over and our primary is over, we need to rally around whoever that nominee is. Because I think the establishment folks that, you know, are my friends, they're right about that. Democratic presidential hopeful Beto O'Rourke has been criticized for not presenting a concrete platform since he officially entered the 2020 presidential race. This week, that changed when the Texas congressman rolled out a $5 trillion plan to combat climate change. But less than a day after it was introduced, the plan was blasted by activists on his own side of the aisle. On this episode, we discuss Beto's climate policy proposal, how it stacks up against plans from other Democratic candidates, and just how green Democrats need to be in order to win support from their own party. Welcome to Political Climate, a bipartisan podcast on energy and environmental issues in America. Presented by the USC Schwarzenegger Institute and the Leonardo DiCaprio Foundation. I'm Julia Piper, contributing editor at Green Tech Media. I'm here in Los Angeles today with Brandon Hurlbut, partner at consulting firm Boundary Stone Partners and former chief of staff at the Department of Energy under President Obama. Brandon, how's your week going so far? I heard you were at a screening of the Avengers. Was it all you hoped and dreamed? It was pretty cool. This was for the Solutions Project. So we are co-founded by Mark Ruffalo, who's the Hulk in the Avengers. Uh, and on the board with us is Don Cheadle, who is War Machine. So we gave out these climate uh, awards to leaders of frontline groups who are fighting you know, climate change. And uh, they screened the movie. And we have these Avenger t-shirts that Marvel is selling. And the proceeds from those sales go to fund these frontline groups. And so it was a big surprise that War Machine came out at the screening. And like these kids who won the awards, like lost their minds. It was so cool. So for anyone who listens to this show who wants to know who they should like better, me or Brandon, it's definitely me. Um, Brandon got to do this while I had to drag my kids out of bed at 6 a.m. I kid you not, 6 a.m., Tell even the older ones to diaper up because I was not going to leave the movie under any circumstances. I committed my life to this. I talked to Brandon. And I'm like, hey, you got to go to the Avengers movie with the Avengers. How was it? His face is just like, whatever. So like now I'm I'm the one you like. Just remember that. Like oh, he, had, he had to go to this premiere with these movie stars. It was kind of wasted on me because I am not a comic book guy. Yeah, so he's going with these comic book stars and I'm sitting there with kids who don't want to sit still for three hours and watch a bunch of people beat the crap out of each other. Well, the guy you're supposed to like is Shane Skelton, our Republican on this show. He's a partner at consulting firm S2C Pacific and a former energy advisor to former House Speaker Paul Ryan. So, yeah, sounds like a busy week uh, in the yeah, world. Julia, of that events. was just one event I did this weekend. It was really interesting. Um, on Saturday, I went to an event uh, that Climahawk sponsored with Bill McKibben. So there, there was a lot of like Patagonia. There was old enviros. Sunday was with Solutions Project and these frontline environmental justice groups. Learned so much from them. Um, Monday, we went to the mayor of LA's event, uh, Green New Deal event, and that was a lot of like technocrat, you know, uh, let's, how do we use these policy levers to solve these, uh, you know, problems. And then last night, had a dinner with Sunrise Movement, New Consensus, and some LA creatives. And now I'm talking to a Paul Ryan Republican. So one of the values I want to like pass on to our listeners is I'm trying to listen to everybody and learn. And as I'm listening and learning, I want to pass on, you know, to our listeners what I'm hearing. You're so popular. <laughs> you really working he hard. Really working is. hard. 
So I just got back from D.C. And, and similar to Brandon, but probably on the other side of the aisle, just caught up with a bunch of old friends. Nothing, you know, too intense. But one of the things I think is important to remind our audience is whether you're on the left or the right or somewhere in between, the baseline of climate politics and policy is not where this show sort of lives. It's not where L.A. lives. It's not where people in the clean tech uh, space live. And I think it's important when we think about solutions. I mean, I see people on Twitter saying that I'm sort of representing the right wing of this issue. A lot of Democrats in Washington don't think about this or care about this. A lot of Republicans don't think about this or care about this. So the reason I think that both of us on the show, all of us, try to offer practical solutions is not because we want to be, you know, delay the solution. It's not uh, because we don't care or we don't take the threat seriously. It's because the baseline, the ground zero of where the Washington policy discussion is at right now is nowhere near where we're at. And I want to meet them where they are so we can get them where we need them. Well, what's interesting, though, to Brandon's point of just all the events he attended is that even among people who are on the more progressive wing of this, they have very different perspectives, like the traditional environmentalist community. You mentioned the technocrat community. They're all advancing very ambitious goals and yet maybe don't even agree on how to get there. There's a lot of debate happening and we're going to talk about that today. Yeah, and one thing just to flag, too, interestingly, is I was talking to friends about the Sunrise Movement because they had the opportunity to hang out with Varshney from the Sunrise Movement at a soccer game a week ago. And in D.C., I was trying to tell friends how great she was and how it's kind of interesting when you meet, you know, see behind the curtain. A lot of the people making environmental and energy policy decisions in D.C. have never heard of Sunrise Movement. And I don't mean they don't like it. I mean, they, they heard about it for the first time from me right then and there. So that's the disconnect between what what we're talking about and what they're talking about and why this show is important, but also why we need to try to bring people along rather than scold them for not being where we are. Well, I guess we should say the Sunrise Movement is, you know, a progressive group of mostly young people who are pushing Democrats even to be more ambitious on climate change. And they famously protested in Nancy Pelosi's office, which, you know, not everyone even knows about. It's very obvious in our world, but a lot of a lot of other lawmakers and, and stakeholders just don't. Well, speaking of Capitol Hill, one thing happening in D.C. this week is the second hearing of the year in the Climate Crisis Committee. That is the newly formed committee by the Democrats that just came together earlier this year. It is chaired by Democratic Representative Kathy Castor, and she actually already introduced a bill, H.R. 9, called the Climate Action Now Act, that would keep the U.S. in the Paris Climate Agreement. And that bill has since already progressed through other official lawmaking committees on the House side and is expected to go for a vote on the House floor this week. In fact, it may have already passed by the time our listeners hear this episode. Shane, I know you're following that legislation. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I'm not following it because of what it is, because we all sort of know, you know, what Paris is and, and where we stand on that. What I'm interested, you know, first off is 91 amendments were introduced and 30 were made in order. And that basically means that the Rules Committee has said that those 30 can be debated on the floor before the bill gets a vote. I want to see, you know, what Republicans are offering, what points of view they're bringing, you know, to, to justify either opposing or voting for certain amendments. I want to see where Democrats are. Are a lot of them comfortable just voting for H.R. 9? Do they want to take, you know, more aggressive climate stands? I think the debate that we see will set up the framework for what we can expect in the House over the next year or so. And then on the Senate side, there's no forcing mechanism to this bill. So basically what it means is it passes the House. And then Mitch McConnell can or cannot take it up. But it's not like certain measures where there's you know, a time frame or a forced vote or a simple majority. It's completely within the majority leader's discretion. So they're not going to vote on this in the Senate. Uh, this is where it's going to end. But I do think we can get a good sense of where people want to go, at least on the House side after this debate. Well, the bill may have already sailed through the House by the time people hear this, but I think you raise a good point, Shane, that this bill, H.R. 9, could set the tone for other climate debates to come. 
And another thing just to flag for our listeners is the Select Committee on the Climate Crisis that you mentioned Kathy Castor is chairing, they hired Dave Banks, who was the International Energy and Climate Advisor to the President until just a couple months ago. Now, he was pushing the President to push for ratification of Kigali. Uh, he was a supporter of the Paris Agreement. He's been on the pro-climate side of things uh, most of his career. And so I mentioned that as a way to point out that this isn't just about obstruction. It sounds like the Republicans on the committee want to at least get a better understanding of these policies and be educated about what they're going to be debating and maybe look for some solutions moving forward. So I'm encouraged by that. Brandon, I know Democrats are frustrated by this bill, HR 9, in part because it it is moving forward when there isn't a companion bill in the Senate. No senators have stepped up and introduced, you know, mirroring legislation. Is that a problem for Democrats? Why are they moving forward on this without even some traction in the Senate? Um, it seems to be some frustration. I mean, this is a global problem. And I think Democrats want to send the message uh, that uh, we want to get back into Paris as soon as we get a Democrat elected in 2020. What's interesting about this bill that's going up for a vote in the House this week is that it's getting blasted from both sides. People are saying you're just reiterating an initiative that the U.S. previously signed on to under President Obama. Obviously, Trump is moving away from that. But why even rehash this? Do something bigger, bolder, like the Green New Deal. Other people say Paris is just not worth even dealing with. Let's just put in targeted incremental measures that are technology focused that stand a better chance of passing. So it's interesting to almost your point at the beginning of the show, Brandon, about the different groups you're talking to. There are many different opinions around how to even address this from a policy perspective. I think HR 9 is kind of in the middle of that. We should be able to do all of it. We should be able to send the message to the world that we want to get back into Paris and we should start moving ahead on our domestic agenda on climate. Well, another item on the domestic agenda for climate came from our own home city here in Los Angeles. Mayor Garcetti introduced his Green New Deal this week, which is a citywide plan to tackle climate change and go carbon neutral by 2050. Our co-producer, Victoria Simon, actually worked on the plan, and we have to give Victoria a special shout out for helping us this season. So thanks, Victoria. Woo! Yeah, Woo! Victoria. <laughs> Brandon, I know you attended Mayor Garcetti's event this week. Uh, what were your takeaways? It was a great event. The highlights of his plan are he wants to get to 80% zero emission vehicles by 2035. He's got a mandate that every building, including homes and businesses, need to be emissions-free by 2050, and then 100% renewable by 2045. Uh, and it was a great interview. The mayor interviewed Rihanna Gunwright, who was on our show last episode. Yeah, policy director at New Consensus and one of the architects of the Green New Deal. So check out that episode if you haven't already. With respect to Garcetti's plan, there were a couple of notable critics. One was the unions who are worried about gas plants closing in the LA area. The other one was the Sunrise Movement, the youth activists who are pushing for bolder uh, climate action. And they thought Garcetti's plan did not go far enough. So that's actually something that came up with the launch of Beto's climate proposal. So let's actually turn to that now. <laughs> On Monday of this week, 2020 Democratic presidential candidate Beto O'Rourke released an ambitious plan to get the U.S. to net zero emissions by 2050 through a 10-year mobilization of roughly $5 trillion. It would also recommit the U.S. to the Paris Climate Agreement. It would restore Obama-era power plant regulations, and it would put an end to new fossil fuel leases on federal lands. Brandon, this is a guy from your camp. What else stood out to you from this proposal? 
So it's essentially four parts. Part one is as soon as he takes office, he wants to do $500 billion in government procurement to decarbonize across all sectors. So what that means is the government purchases a lot of everything. And so $500 billion can, is a lot of purchasing power to sort of move the needle on some of these technologies. He's also got a buy clean program for steel and glass and cement. That's meaningful because... Uh, these industrial emissions are very hard. We don't have a lot of good solutions for that. So he's trying to tackle that. I feel like we don't even talk about that often. That's super interesting. No, so that was, a, I think, a, a good part of his plan. Uh, he wants to, he's got ambitious appliance and building efficiency standards because buildings are you know, a big problem. Uh, part two of his plan is mobilizing $5 trillion. Uh, so he wants to provide a trillion dollars in tax incentives. He's got three trillion in uh, cheap loans through a program called the Rural Utility Service. This is at the Department of Agriculture. Uh, that program helped bring electricity to all parts of America. And in the loan program at DOE, we use cheap loans to really accelerate deployment of clean energy technology. So he wants to put three trillion into a similar type program. Uh, he wants to do some R and D, and then he wants to give grants to people to make this transition for housing, for transportation. So a trillion dollars in grants. Part three is enforcing. The the big goal of net zero by 2050. He wants to do a lot of measuring and disclosing. And then part four is investing in mitigation and resilience. That's a big plan. That's definitely the most detailed climate plan we have seen come from a candidate uh, in, the, in, the, in the race so far, which is interesting that it came from Beto because he was previously criticized for not having many policy options uh, on his website or on, on his uh, platform at all. Yeah. And his first policy proposal. So that means it's a priority. Yeah, so I've got some likes and, and don't likes. Um, Paris Agreement, he wants to stay in. That's fine. Uh, I'll talk about this a little bit more on my don't likes. But I think if you're going to reenter Paris, you might as well you know, make it a little bit more aggressive and make it more meaningful. Uh, reducing methane leaks and HFCs, that's critically important and often overlooked. Those are far more potent greenhouse gases than carbon. And often they don't fit into the sort of sexy policy debate. So I'm glad he you know, pointed to that. Uh, zero emissions vehicles, he wants to deploy on a much wider scale. Great idea. Brandon talked about you know, buy clean and appliance and building efficiency standards. I think that stuff makes a ton of sense. And it's actually pretty difficult for the federal government to get involved in a lot of that policy to the extent we can start to do that. I think that would make a huge difference. Um, I love part four. You know, he broke it down into parts one, two, three, and four. A lot about resiliency and adaptation. That's like not sexy enough to hit the headlines on cable news every day, but it's actually critically important because those are the things not that we're doing to protect against future threats, but that we're doing to protect against current threats and rebuild from disasters, you know, that we've already had to deal with. So I like that he, he brought that to the fore. Um, on the don't like side, all the things he wants to invest in, I actually want to invest in too. But he mentions, you know, 500 billion in annual government procurement. Our entire discretionary budget cap for next year is 1.1 trillion. So I, I want to know how he gets to that number. How do you, you know, use half of the federal government to do that? Uh, 1.5 trillion in year one. Again, I like it. I want to better understand what he thinks he's doing here because those numbers, you know, don't come from from nowhere. Unlike federal leasing, which he touches on too. Those are within the discretion of the executive. So he could do that. If he was elected, if he, he could go ahead and start to take those steps. Um, you got to get this other stuff through Congress. So I want to hear you outline how you're going to work with Congress and the divided government to make this happen. I'm not a big fan of stopping new fossil fuel leases on federal lands. I know that's a popular talking point. But in, in my view, we should use our assets to wield our power over the rest of the world. So I'm actually fine with electrifying everything here. I want to electrify everything here. I like watching our portfolio become cleaner. But the fact of the matter is there are parts of the world, uh, like China, for example, where their pollution is 800 percent worse in most places than 
any anywhere in the United States, even the worst places. So what I'd like to see is us export some of that natural gas. We don't have to use it here, but export it to countries that are using lots of coal in facilities that are older, haven't been retrofitted and are spewing out pollution and get the geopolitical benefit of being able to control people's energy, uh, but also get the environmental benefit of cleaning up people's footprints around the country. So I guess in short, what I would say is a lot of what he wants to do is great, but I want to see someone explain how they're going to get there and then also how they're going to wield the U.S.'s economic power to make sure that every country is complying with the goals of Paris, not just the U.S. So Shane, just on that federal lands piece, so the taxpayers then would be using their land, you know, to produce fossil fuels and then have to pay to clean that up. Like, how is that a good policy? So a a couple things, and I'm glad you raised that. Um, I think our royalty system is out of whack. So right now, the, the taxpayers are giving up this resource, and they're not getting anything in return, or at least not getting anything of value in return. Uh, and that money is money that we could use, frankly, to invest in clean technology and some of the other stuff that we both want to do. You're, some but of this you're stuff. creating more emissions. You're you're creating the problem. You're, you're advancing the problem that then you have to go solve. Well, I would argue that you're reducing global emissions, which is my goal for climate, not just reducing U.S. emissions. So if we're pulling natural gas out of the ground here and displacing dirty coal in China, we're actually reducing the global greenhouse gas emissions footprint, which is what I want to do, because no matter what we do in the U.S., if we act alone, the global climate crisis won't have a dent in it. We might have cleaner air here, which I do want as well, but I want them to play along also. I believe Senator Lindsey Graham even had some comments in the past week or two about natural gas being a key part of Republicans' climate solutions that they're going to be putting forward in the coming weeks. Well, keep in mind that we're one of the cleanest countries in the world, even though we have a big population that manufactures a lot. So if we can get cleaner fuels into you know Southeast Asian countries that have a lot more emissions, that would be great. Also, everyone at this table agrees that we're not huge fans of Russian meddling. If we can cut off their... Speak you know, for yourself. Well, maybe you <laughs> like them, but if we can cut off their supply, their cash supply, 75% of Russia's revenue comes from their um, oil and gas resources. If we can supply Europe and displace them, we're going to be solving a lot of problems at once. Well, we mentioned federal lands. That's actually a key part of uh, Elizabeth Warren's climate proposal that she put out in recent weeks. She would actually immediately stop offshore drilling on federal lands and restore boundary lines for two of the national monuments that were reduced under Trump. And she would also really push for expanding renewable energy production in public areas. What's interesting is that Warren's plan came out. It was relatively well-received. Beto's plan came out, was much bigger, bolder, given all the points that you laid out, Brandon, and yet it saw backlash. The Sunrise Movement, as we've discussed, came out and criticized Beto for not pushing for net zero emissions by 2030 and rather pushing for net zero emissions by 2050. You would have thought that the Sunrise Movement would embrace Beto's plan, especially that it gets into so much detail and tackles so many sectors of the economy, and instead they were critical. And I thought that was interesting given that the United Nations IPCC report doesn't even call for net zero by 2030. It actually says decline emissions 45% by 2030 and the net zero around 2050 in line with Beto's plan. What's more is that the Green New Deal resolution itself does not call for net zero emissions by 2030. And a lot of experts have since weighed in saying that there's not really even any modeling around how you would get there. So, Brandon, I'm curious to go to you. Why do you think Sunrise put, planted their flag on this one and came out against Beto rather than embracing this kind of gesture? Yeah, I mean, there was even some criticism on the on the left from folks like Dave Roberts, who writes for Vox, criticized you know Sunrise Movement for their criticism. So I have some thoughts I want to share with both my establishment friends and uh, my super progressive friends on the left. You know, to my establishment friends, 
you know, I've been spending so much time with, you know, Varshini and Demond and Rihanna from the New Consensus and these frontline groups through the Solutions Project who are fighting hard for environmental justice. And I'm learning so much from them. And I really admire them so much. And what I'm hearing is that, you know, they want systemic change because the system is just not working for them. When you talk to these people who are growing up around fossil fuel plants and the impact it has on their daily lives, our kids are getting sick every day and then they have to like take off of work. And for young people who have a job as like a teacher and then they have to supplement that by being an Uber driver at night, you start talking about the market. They're like, the market's not working for me. So I think you know, we need to be very conscious of that, that the system is not working for many people in this country. And by the way, the experts, you know, who are criticizing this stuff, that, you know, whether you're a pundit or a think tank or a former cabinet secretary, they've been wrong about a lot of this over the last few years. You know, they were we, a couple of years ago when I was at DOE, people were talking about 50% renewables being like this crazy stretch goal, you know, by 2050, 50% by 2050 is crazy. California is at 50% next but, year. But where's the country right now? And, and I'm not being funny. I think it's close to 7% if you don't count hydro, right? Right. But, you know, if you look at California as a model, we have set these ambitious goals and then we've had to reestablish them because we've hit them so early. So, you know, all these like models that people do on spreadsheets have not been totally accurate. But then I would say to my progressive, you know, friends, let's have this debate. We're having a primary. That's good. Let's let's get all of our ideas. You want to support a candidate that wants to get there by 2030 and is really ambitious? Go for it. Fight hard for it. But here's the thing. Trump is the end game. And when our debate is over and our primary is over, we need to rally around whoever that nominee is. Because I think that the establishment folks that, you know, are my friends, they're right about that. Bernie and, the, and that crowd, a lot of people, a lot of young people sat it out in 2016 because they were upset about, you know, Hillary. And look what happened. Look what we got. So fight hard, push the envelope. But when we're done with our primary, get behind the nominee. I think that's going to be interesting about this strategy from Sunrise. It could either be a super smart negotiation tool. You always, you know, overshoot and push harder in a negotiation. But this could end up shooting them in the foot if they don't actually come around and don't actually come around and support the party overall. Yeah. And one point I just want to add on the frontline groups, you know, we talk about these things like 2050 and 30 years. If your kid is getting sick every day, you don't have 30 years. You know, so that's that's where that's coming from. And I just want people to understand where it's coming from. Okay, so there's a lot to dive into there. First of all, the Sunrise Movement commentary drives me nuts. Um, as I mentioned at the top of the show, I like Varshney a lot, which makes me much more open to, to hearing what they have to say, which is sort of how life is weird. But to use the biggest cliche of cliches, you can't make the perfect the enemy of the good. And so when I start to think about the work that I'm doing, trying to bring Republican members along, trying to get people who have traditionally been a little bit more reluctant or resistant to taking on climate solutions, and you're convincing them, we have a path. We have something that's good for our economy. We have something that's good for everybody. And then you see the left arguing with themselves. Let's just be honest. The right is the hard part here. The left is supposed to be the easy part. So at a certain point, you go, well, we're not negotiating against ourselves. Let them figure out what it is that they want. Let them figure out how they're going to solve this grand problem and then convince us that that's the way to do it. But right now, Republicans don't even have an entry point. Like, is Paris good? Is Paris not good? Is is 2050, you know, net zero carbon? Is that good or is that awful? Uh, is 2030 achievable? And I don't think you're going to get Republicans to 2030 no matter what. But I, I think that the infighting is not leaving Republicans a lot of room to engage and say, if this is what you all are putting forward, let's see where I can get my membership. Let's see how we can line up on that. Right Republicans now. could also just step up and come up with their own plans. 
look, a lot of things can happen, but let's just be realistic about where we are politically. This has not traditionally been a Republican issue. We're trying to give them an entry point. That's what people like us do for a living, right? You try to give them a way to understand how this helps their constituents. And they have, and they have. We should know. They have come up with some ideas. I, I think they have, but I think they also don't know what they're negotiating with. Now, what Brandon addressed as far as you don't have 30 years if your kids are sick right now, that's where really my compassion is. And that that's a pollution issue. And that's where I mentioned, you know, the, the, the actual pollution in China and the U.S., I think that we can try to solve both, and I think Arnold talked about this quite a bit, but pollution needs to be dealt with like right now. Particulate matter needs to be dealt with right now. Um, ozone needs to be dealt with right now. Kids getting asthma needs to be dealt with right now. And incidentally, some of that stuff, which appeals to everyone, Republican or Democrat, will have the sort of byproduct consequence of dealing with part of the climate issue. Uh, but also, we got to separate that from you know, healthcare and guaranteed income, because it just becomes too big a pill to swallow for any rational, you know, policymaker, at least on the right. So let's deal with those things. And let's leave the sort of grand reconstruction of capitalism for another day. Well, you mentioned Arnold, so we should give another plug for one of our earlier episodes with Arnold Schwarzenegger himself talking about how pollution he found during his tenure as governor of California really was the rallying cry. It was the thing that got people acting on climate in a way that climate itself just never has. I think another interesting point here with respect to Beto is uh, criticism he's been facing around voting for lifting the U.S. oil export ban, which is a bill that passed in 2015, but interestingly also extended tax credits for wind and solar. And yet I've seen full articles just blasting him for voting for lifting the oil ban with barely any mention of the tax credit piece. So I feel like that's a tricky one. How do you win on that? I think a lot of people thought that that was a fair uh, trade-off. Brandon, do you think that the parties have, you know, attacking one of its own by by focusing well, on yeah, that I, vote? You know, I think we need, and this is another piece of advice to my friends on the, you know, very far left, is like, I hope that you you read all of that. You know, he did vote for that, for the tax credits. In his plan, I think a lot of people saw more Obama stuff as his solution in his climate plan, and they just discount that. And they should look, I mean, $3 trillion in rural utility service, that's, that's really good. He talks a lot about mobilization. There's a lot there. What's interesting is that some of the other Democratic presidential candidates don't seem to have faced so much criticism so far. I don't know if that's because a lot of people had a lot of hopes and dreams around Beto and really thought he could be their guy and just wanted more. Or now the conversation's just evolving and people are getting more detailed in their critiques. And he did put out a more detailed plan. What's interesting to me is uh, Joe Biden had his first presidential campaign rally in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania this week, and he didn't even really mention climate change at all. He mentioned clean energy, I think, once as part of a jobs growth plan. He's in general trying to get the support of labor groups. And AFL-CIO, a union, uh, has not backed the Green New Deal. They've actually been critical of it. So that's going to be interesting, I think, on the left is seeing where these candidates fall in line. And does the Biden model of being a little more moderate end up winning the day? Or do the Sunrise Movement folks end up pulling the discussion left and Biden, for instance, and others end up changing their platform as a result? I mean, I think there's a lane for him to run as the moderate. I mean, one view of the 2020 election is it all comes down to Michigan, Wisconsin and Pennsylvania. And if we win those three states, we win the presidency. And Biden has proven he can attract those voters in those states. Those voters happen to be whiter, older, more blue collar. That's a demographic that he's had a lot of success with. I'm curious to Shane, uh, let's a better one, and he became president. Do you think Republicans could support the type of plan that he laid out? 
Uh, I think it would be very difficult, especially after Republicans are still railing against the trillion dollar, you know, American Recovery and Reinvestment Act to get behind a five trillion dollar plan. I also think we'd hear some people say, because we we heard this when Trump said, you know, we're going to have a trillion dollar plan, but we're going to leverage, you know, 200 billion in government money and turn it into a trillion. When I looked at Beto's plan, five trillion, how's he going to come up with that? But what I learned was he was going to spend one point five trillion and leverage it into five trillion. So I think there's going to be, you know, some criticism on this is just a big government spending program similar to ARA, uh, the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act. I also think that there would be some pushback saying, come on, show me how 1.5 turns into 5 trillion. We just had this discussion with President Trump. Doesn't trillion start to sound weird after you say it like 25 times? <laughs> trillion, trillion. But I guess that's the scale of the crisis that we're talking about, the level of investment that's needed. Right. And I think that's where, you know, Sunrise and part of their criticism is like they have the view of like this battle of Winterfell. And it's all hands on deck. No spoilers, Brandon. No spoilers. <laughs> and so Game we need Thrones to do everything fans. that we can. And I hope, you know, uh, the last episode we did with, you know, the new consensus group, it was long. But I hope you listen to the history lesson there about World War II mobilization. There, all the models suggested that we could not do what they said we needed to do. And they were able to figure it out very quickly. And Brandon, one thing I I didn't address earlier that I wanted to talk about when you said they feel like the system's not working for them. Part of the discussion right now going going, you know, on amongst the intellectual right is is free market capitalism a tool for prosperity or is it something to which we owe fealty? And a lot of people are starting to believe that it's a tool to prosperity. And to the extent that it's not delivering prosperity for all, there have to be restraints on capitalism. Interestingly, the only major political figure to raise this issue in the last several decades is President Donald Trump. And frankly, I think a big part of the reason he got elected was because he communicated with people who didn't feel like the system was working for them and explained that we don't owe fealty to free trade. We don't owe fealty to capitalism. Now, I'm not even articulating that as my view, but it's interesting that what they're fighting for is what he ran and won on. And people should start to think about those synergies. I think they are. And I'm seeing the debates that we're having are big and meaningful. They're about things like, what is the theory of change? What is the role of the government? What is the role of government in markets, right? Because the government can shape markets. Our greatest time of prosperity was when the government actively shaped those markets. That's the time people are talking about they want to get back to. That being the World War II mobilization? Yeah. I mean, we had the greatest run of prosperity in this country, you know, because of things like the GI Bill. And we had factories where people were working. That's what Trump talked about, reopening those factories. Let's have the government reopen Lordstown GM plant that was closed and make batteries. There's a battery shortage in this country. We can do these things. So let me give you a framework that I was thinking about the whole drive over here because I really can't grapple with it. So what I proposed earlier was pricing in the negative externalities of foreign emissions through trade. So, for example, if China's delivering, you know, widgets at one-tenth the price of the U.S., they can only sell it into the U.S. based on some sort of measure against their carbon intensity. So that does two things. It protects U.S. manufacturing jobs, but it also makes sure that when companies are trading with the U.S., they're living up to our environmental standards. Where I get thrown off is the obvious loser here is the people who depend on low-cost goods, and I'm just not sure how to grapple with that. So we can create jobs... And we can, you know, reduce emissions in other countries to the extent they want to take advantage of the U.S. economy. But what do we do about those same people who are being left behind who already can't afford to live if we're raising the cost of goods and services for them? We need to solve that. And I don't know how. Yeah, I like the idea of putting them to work to make electric vehicles, to make batteries, to make heat pumps, to make solar panels, to make wind turbines. And we can deploy those here and we can sell them to China. We can sell them to India so that they can clean up their pollution. 
Well, these are actually all things that several of the Democratic presidential candidates have brought up at various points. There's a great New York Times piece where they lay out where pretty much all the candidates stand. A few more have since joined the race since that ran. But one of the major common themes is improving investments in energy storage. That's a common one almost across every candidate. Greater investment in research and development is another one that's supported by almost all the candidates. Uh, Cory Booker said he would at least double federal funding for clean energy research. Uh, the Beto O'Rourke campaign has also supported that. Bernie Sanders has talked about a plan that would include, quote, massive investment in infrastructure and eliminate subsidies for fossil fuels. So curious to see where that infrastructure piece could go. Other things that were more controversial were a carbon tax. Some said that they would support it. Cory Booker, Pete Buttigieg, others willing to consider it. Jay Inslee, interestingly enough, has not come out apparently fully fully behind a carbon tax. So I think a lot of these these proposals will play out in this campaign. And if Jay Inslee gets his way, there will be a climate change debate. And I think that'll be interesting to get some of these candidates on the record about what they support and where they stand. They should do it. And I think for our season, we're hoping to have some of these presidential candidates on the show. So we'll be asking them directly and um, stay tuned for that. I want to hear one of the 20, we'll assume be 30, probably 50 and 100 candidates at some point, explain how they're going to solve not the U.S. climate crisis, but the global climate crisis. What are they going to do to make sure that our foreign counterparts are taking all the steps we're taking to clean it up? That's a debate. That's a question that has to be asked if there's a climate debate. Well, I think the Republicans should also find another answer to that, because that is often the critique that we hear, that Paris doesn't make sense because look at China, look at India. But there's no other follow-up of, well, here's how we could do that. I just offered one. Asking Democrats to come up with the plan? I just I just answered that question, Th- Julia. But Republicans proposed that? Well, this one did. <laughs> That's my point. No, we haven't seen a lawmaker on the Republican side of the aisle propose that yet. And on that note, let's say something nice. So Say Something Nice is our segment where our Democrat and Republican co-hosts have to say something redeeming about the opposing political party. Brandon, why don't you go first? I'm excited that George David Banks is joining the select committee. Um, I think he's been, um, I've liked a lot of things he's had to say about climate. He stood up to Trump in in certain circumstances. Incidentally, he was fired for uh, not being able to get his national security clearance over smoking pot. So we know he's green. (laughs) Yeah, that is uh, David Banks, who is joining the House Select Committee on the Climate Crisis. Pretty crazy that Jared got his national security clearance, even though he was like having meetings with hostile foreign powers and not disclosing them. But he smoked a joint and he just like, can't help himself, can he? Brandon just can't <laughs> help himself. This is our say something nice you segment, know? but it's all sorry, uh, sorry. tongue in cheek. Let's be honest. Shane. Uh, so I'm throwing mine to the rarest of places to Chuck and Nancy, as President Trump calls them. Um, earlier today, it's Tuesday. Um, today, what we're recording, they agreed to, in principle to a $2 trillion infrastructure deal uh, with President Trump. It's not 100% clear where the revenue is coming from, and I'm sure there's a lot to be ironed out. But one of the things that I referenced earlier in the show that they talked about a lot, too, was hardening our critical infrastructure and you know adapting to severe weather events and disasters that we've seen. I think that's critically important to any infrastructure plan. You can't build now like you built you know the first time around. You've got to think about about the new challenges we face and get there. So kudos to them for working with the president. I know these are these are tense times on both sides, and I'm glad to see that the, the administration and um, the Democratic leaders are, are going to try to push this deal through. Great. Well, that is our show for this week. Uh, this is Political Climate, a bipartisan podcast on energy and environmental issues in America. Brandon, Shane, 
Great job today. I'm Julia Piper, contributing editor at Green Tech Media. Thanks also to Victoria, our co-producer. We have to give her a big shout out for making this show possible. And thank you all for listening to this show. You can find Political Climate on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, almost everywhere you can find podcasts. What about Twitch? We're not on Twitch. We should have a live stream. <laughs> you can watch us video game and talk about climate change. <laughs> I played FIFA the other day for the first time in That's 22 great. Nobody years. Nobody cares. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Ending the show with the fact that you can also find us on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram at poly underscore climate. This truly is the end of our show now. Goodbye. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs>